Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Jennifer Garvey-Berger. She's the CEO of Cultivating Leadership and the author of three acclaimed books, Changing on the Job, Simple Habits for Complex Times, which was co-authored with Keith Johnston, and Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps. And she's back with us on The Deep Dive. This is her second time recording with me to talk about her newest book, Unleash Your Complexity Genius, Growing Your Inner Capacity to Lead, and that is co-offered by Carolyn Coughlin, and I hope I said her name correctly. So with all of that, I want to welcome you back to The Deep Dive. How are you? I'm doing super. Thanks for having me back, Philip. I'm really, as always, excited to, to have this conversation with you. We, we recorded, it, it feels like years ago, but it wasn't. It was actually this same calendar year, which is remarkable. And, and then we, we had another opportunity to be in discussion and conversation with ourselves as, as part of a, another unrelated group that is filled with very smart, very engaged people that is not organized by me, but I'm lucky to always be in conversation with them. So we had an opportunity to spend time there. So I feel like you've been this like welcome presence in throughout my year, weaving yourself through my year. And here we are in the fall and you're back again. I'm so glad it's a welcome presence. Otherwise, it could be, you know, like hanging around like a bad smell. So I'm delighted to no, no, delighted, no. delighted to be back. This is a this is a more than than welcome presence. And you know, the last time we spoke, we we had a, a really good interview, and then I read like literally maybe a day after. It might have even been the same day that we had our recording that you were in the process of transitioning your current business, which I found to be a really fascinating like process, which it because the way in which you described it, you didn't just do the usual thing, which is talk about that from the from the perspective of financials and business operations and and all of those things. you you managed to to share what I thought was um very insightful about the you know emotional and and psychological ways in which a a business, can transform itself in, in these moments and what that how that impacts the leadership of that business. So before we really get into the book and, and talking about complexity in the way it's framed, I'd, I'd love to give you an opportunity to share a little bit more about that process because I, I think it invites us into a space to talk about complexity. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we did a kind of an unusual thing that most people had never heard of until recently, the chief executive and founder of Patagonia did the same thing. So now, um, now everybody's heard of it, uh, which is we, four of us started cultivating leadership 10, 15 years ago, and it's grown into a really interesting, I think, very beautiful organization of about 85 people around the world. And we four had never I'd always had a commitment that we wouldn't center money, right? That financial return was important. We all need to make a living. And the 80 people who work with us also need to make a living. But we weren't going to try to maximize that ever. And so owning Cultivating Leadership, we've never 
paid ourselves a dividend. We've never done any of those kinds of things that, that one can do. And we were noticing that now it was getting to be of a kind of size and scale that some people were interested in even buying it. It's very tempting when somebody wants to buy your organization. And so I think each of us for different reasons, each of us four for different reasons, uh, really wanted to change the way that ownership was structured. And after being in conversation with lawyers for years to get them to understand what we were talking about, we finally created a foundation that we call the Tilt Foundation. We call it that because we are hoping to do something, however small it might be, to tilt the odds of um, increasing justice and sustainability on the planet. And we gave the organization to that foundation, which uh, some of our colleagues run. And uh, so we're trying a whole new thing. It's a, it's a whole new way of thinking about who we are working for. And it's created, you know, all kinds of expected and unexpected outcomes, right? We expected to kind of have a burst of uh, our colleagues getting really excited and passionate about what it is we are on about, feeling proud of that. Uh, and I didn't expect to feel kind of sad that I ne- I don't own this organization anymore, even though I, I never was, I never knew that I was happy about owning it. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> um, noticing that I'm a little bit sad about not owning it is kind of a riot for me. And, you know, there are all kinds of complexities we have to learn about how to think about giving away money now in a way that we hadn't ever had to think about it before. So there's like a whole bunch, but by and large, it has been a completely fascinating and energizing process. I mean, there's so many interesting things in there, right? And and one of them is the the realization of certain feelings. Like you mentioned, you didn't realize you had this particular relationship with the organization until that relationship had changed, right? So um, I'm curious about, as you reflect on that, do you, do you think it's a case of what we as humans sometimes do is that we take our current state for granted. So we don't really think about it. And so it was just kind of moving and operating in the background. Or do you think it took this sort of repurposing or rethinking what ownership meant for you to start to wrestle with some of those those feelings? Because ownership is is a word that has its own weight to it, you know, whether it's in a um, business perspective or 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 otherwise. Yeah, it's really interesting. Who I think it, I, I think that the owning the firm had become kind of just wallpaper, right? I, it wasn't a thing that we noticed that much. I, I say that it's it's easy for me. One of my partners, Jim Wicks, he does the he's our managing director, and he does the really hard work. He does the hard work of dealing it with it when we owned it, and then he's done the hard work of like dealing with the lawyers and the accountants all over the world to try and like not own it anymore. So I'm sure he thought about it every day, but I didn't think about it every day. And, and I think probably it would have taken a change, would have taken some, some change for me to uh, really face into my thoughts and feelings about it. I'm not sure I could have examined the wallpaper without sort of ripping it off. 
Yeah, well, wallpaper has that tendency, right? <laughs> you know, even even if in in all the the ways in which design has has changed, right? Like wallpaper seemed like it was a much bigger thing when I was younger, and now it seems like it's making a comeback, right? Like, you know, we found better adhesives, and now all of a sudden people are willing to put things back on on their wall, right? Maybe there's a there's a a metaphor there, um, and I I, I want to use use that as kind of a bridge into the book and talking about complexity and it, it feels like when when I came to like thinking about complexity and starting to use that word obviously tons of people predate my my thinking about it you know in 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 my world I kind of felt like I came to it organically but probably I didn't right probably was just kind of floating around and then all of a sudden I was like wow these problems are are odd to me right however I define problems I think I I think because I looked, started to really look into design, like the, the notion of wicked problems is probably what led me into a, a deeper reading and, and trying to understand complexity if there's, if there's such a thing. Now it feels to me as if this has now become like an idea or a, a notion that I see far more often, right? So I say all that to say, I would love to hear sort of your working idea or notion of what complexity is and then follow that up with do you feel the same way i might be feeling that the term is being however one defines it the term is being somewhat overused or used out of context to where it's losing its usefulness so i know i, I answered maybe two three questions in there but i wanted to give you a runway <laughs> You always give me a runway, Philip. It's awesome. Runway is given. It's there. So um, so I've been into complexity for, call it 15, 20 years. And when I first got into it, it was weird, right? It was like this, like, is it science? Is it in psychology? Where is it? Because there's some crossover between ideas about development and inner complexity and systems and how they're ordered and outer complexity. And people would, like, when I would say, yeah, I help people deal with complexity, a lot of the folks I talked to would just kind of shrug. Now, everybody's into complexity, of course. And the word is basically meaning, ah, like, that's basically what the word means now, right? Like, I can't handle it. I think a really useful designation, differentiation, is between what's complicated and what's complex. Because I, I think those words, if we if we had a little bit of a distinction, I think we could get a handle on it. Because people often say, you're making things too complex, or simple is better than complex, or whatever, right? Like you have this, like, complexity is the enemy, simple is our friend, let's go that way. And I think about it differently. I think using some ideas from Dave Snowden, I think that the complicated world is predictable, but hard. There's lots of steps. There's lots of process. There's lots of expertise needed when you have to fill things out in triplicate. This is often like a complication. And when organizations add extra steps or the government adds extra steps we make things harder to navigate and often needlessly difficult, right? I think of that as complicated and it's often human imposed difficulty on the face of some process. 
like building a rocket ship is complicated. There's a lot of difficulty. Building a rocket ship at NASA is probably wicked complicated because there are, everything has to be ordered from the government from the least expensive bidder. You know, everything is hard. Then there's complex. Complex is when there are so many interacting parts that you can't know what's going to happen next. So it's these interacting parts actually affect each other and they affect each other such that from here, you can't predict the future. You can't know what the outcome is going to be. There's no way of knowing. So building a rocket ship is complicated. Having a family is complex. Parenting, you can't know. And if your mama raised you a way you think made you awesome, and you want to do exactly that same thing for your kids, it might or might not work, right? But it's not going to be you. Because there's a whole different context. It's a whole different set of interactions. It's a whole different kid. It's not going to be you. It's not going to end up the same. And so I think we can simplify the complicated. But complexity is often has a kind of simplicity in it that we just need to be able to see and access to work with it well. And so it's that distinction that I think is super helpful in my own life. And I love when this happens because you jumped into the complicated versus complex <laughs> notion, which was sitting there in my notes after that initial setup, right? So we we got there in a, in a very organic way. And I, I, I agree with, with, so much of your assessment. Like when I when I got into when I started to read more about this stuff, I remember I made a a sort of note to myself with with distinctions in all these terms because I'm a language, I'm a super annoying person about language. And you're right, we do use these words somewhat interchangeably, but the the power is in their distinction, right? Like complicated and complex can seem to be the same, but they're not the same, right? Simplicity, again, is another one of those ideas that's that's very powerful, but that's different from the notion of predictability or or pulling things apart in terms of a system, very, very different ideas. So what I've started to notice, and again, this is very anecdotal, right? But you know, Dave Snowden has been on the show. He's an awesome dude. And what I've noticed is that he's become a lot, a lot more vocal on on different media in order to try to clarify the this like school of thought, right? Which I which I find as a as a voyeur completely interesting, right? Because I get a chance to read all this stuff and see the back and forth, and it it sharpens my perspective. So I appreciate that he and many others are kind of trying to figure this stuff all out. So, you know, with that as, as sort of a, a lead in, you mentioned this, this notion of um, predictable outcomes, potential predictable outcomes. And what I've been getting of, of the feeling is that a lot of organizations, and I'll, you know, that's a very broad term, but what I've been seeing in classic business talk is that as they search for more predictable outcomes, complexity and thinking about complexity seems like, oh, this is going to give us the methodology or this is going to give us the means to get to more predictable outcomes. Whereas how I read it, and again, I'm not saying my reading is right, but how I read it is that there is, we have to accept not knowing things. 
And businesses and maybe humans, some seem to have a real problem with not knowing. And and so we we want to layer these systems so we can say, okay, that's going to happen. When that seems to me to be exactly the opposite of how we should be thinking about these things. So that's what I mean by I feel like it's becoming more popular, but being used, but being misused um, in, in many ways. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, are you seeing that? If so, to what extent? Am I crazy? What are your thoughts? <laughs> you are not crazy. We are seeing the same thing, which is, I think people are just desperate to know what's going to happen next. The more I've studied kind of internal complexity and what complexity does to us, the more clear it is that in all of these human systems, internal systems, we are predicting all the time. Just so many of our systems are predictive. Our emotions are predictive. Our, you know, our thoughts are predictive. We're just constantly a couple of seconds ahead and sometimes a year ahead. And so when that gets foggy, we don't like it. And it's experienced in our bodies as threat. It's experienced as a stress. We don't like that. We want it to go away. And so we do the things that you're talking about. We like try to find the next thing that will solve it for us so that it goes away. And it's not going to go away because we are so interconnected now. There's so many facets of our interwoven economies, our interwoven societies, what it is to be in a city, what it is to be in a, you know, a global supply chain network. Uh, all these things mean we cannot, in, unless you go off and you know, live in the mountains, off the grid, there you can create a life that's relatively free of complexity. You've got weather, but if you're going to be interacting with humans, if you're going to be running a business, if you're going to be uh, raising a family, it's really hard to imagine that you're going to ever find a way of predicting. And so then we have to figure out how do I be with that? You know, what, what, what do I do with the fact that I'm not going to know and that a lot of the, the things I put in place to keep bad things from happening are just complicating the system and making things hard. What do we do about that? I, I want to jump into an, it's going to be the same point, but I, you said something that was really interesting about, you know, how humans like seek to, to understand. And I, I had a, a kind of a, a, a jotting down of a, of an impression of something here, which is, you know, thinking about different knowledge systems, right? Like we, we all, come and this is where the culture piece comes into me like we we're all come from different culture bases which often have very different knowledge systems cooked into them very different value systems and when i look at this idea of of knowing right the the sort of predictable nature i i wonder is there something in the way like western worlds have have sort of evolved for lack of a better word where in that sort of, you know, I'm going to overlay a bunch of stuff, this kind of Judeo-Christian model, this kind of, that has kind of flowed through the, the Reformation and the Renaissance and all these things, industrial age. It, it seems to me that one of the main parts of, of that is this separable nature of man. And I'm, I'm going to gender that because most of these people who wrote were only talking about men. Um, man having this separable existence from quote unquote nature. And so we as men have the ability to control 
to change, to alter, to have dominion over those things, right? So this ownership piece comes up. That puts you in a completely different headspace and emotional space when dealing with what you don't know, quote unquote, right? Because then the world to you appears as threat <laughs> to either be managed or controlled. Whereas other knowledge systems that don't have that separable notion don't necessarily view everything they don't know as threat, right? So it feels like it leans more into incorporating rather than separ separating. So without trying to make it seem like, oh, you know, everything that was comes from indigenous or or native is somehow magical, right? This isn't an episode of Avatar, but I, I do think that there there are kind of core values and belief systems in that that changes the way we look at the world and maybe affect how we understand complexity. So I wanted to give you a chance to kind of wrestle with that a, a little bit. I, I think this is a, a beautiful example of the way uh, our history creates our relationship to a certain extent. Our history creates a piece of our biology, a piece of our relationship to complexity. It's a, in a complex system, which humans are, which human history is, which culture is, you can't tell what causes what, right? So was it the enlightenment and our idea that we could think our way through anything? Was, you know, is that a cause or an effect? I don't know. You know, you go back to this, this Judeo-Christian idea of separate, separate from and, um, and dominion over nature. These ideas are, have offered us some extraordinary advantages penicillin, you know, the COVID vaccine, right? The clean water, flush toilets, right? All, all of these things come from studying something, pulling it apart, figuring out what we could change, and then saying we have dominion over the water, we can make it clean, it's making us sick, we can make it clean, and we can then drink it, right? And at the same time, there are all these horrible unintended consequences, right? We have dominion over the species, so we could just slaughter them. We don't like the way it looks here, so we'll bring in all of the plants and animals from the place we came from before we colonize this place, and we'll just see what happens. It'll be great. And this fundamental separation between us and nature, I think, has been a piece of what we've done to nature, and now what nature is doing to us. Because we're we're the same as nature, right? We are we are entwined, entangled, and so uh, this idea of separate it out, study it rationally, break it apart, control it, and then put it back together, and it'll work the way you want it to work, as though it's a machine, works really well for machines, you know, and for some relatively simple human systems, even COVID, right? We, we were able to kind of take that apart, see what it was, study it, create a vaccine, put the vaccine in, see how that changed things, right? As part of the largest experiment in human history. And so there are a set of things, we might call them complicated, where that strategy works really well. And then there are a set of other things, we might call them complex, where the systems are too entangled for us to be able to do that. And when we try to do that, we screw things up. We make them worse. And not knowing the difference is profoundly problematic. And I think most cultures that are not Western, Eastern and indigenous cultures, just know a ton more 
about complexity because they, they've been in it. They haven't separated themselves from it. They've been watching it from the inside for thousands of years. And here we have gone about it in the West in the way you'd expect us to by like pulling it apart and separating it from the complicated and, you know, doing all these things and studying it and even finding out that it is a thing. So opening up our mind view, opening up our capacity to relate to and hold on to this sense that there is just mystery in the world. There is just stuff we're not going to know that we, you can't know how your life story goes until the end of your life, which isn't the finish line where we tend to be rushing towards. So coming to a new set of relationships with that, this is awesome, right? This is a great thing to do. And, and, it's, a, and it's a very challenging thing to do, right? Because we, you know, even this idea of, you know, what is like what is rational you know what is logic right like i think again you know i use these words all the time so i'm not pointing any fingers at those of us who use these words like they're words right but they're words that are they have such weight in a in a western way of thinking right because it was often used to say well our way is rational because rational equal like rational equals science and logic, right? And that science and logic in a, in a Western frame is traced through all the things that we already know, right? And when I look out into the world, I see, you know, all these like tech bro assholes and others, right? Who use that same idea of, of rational, rationality and logic in the frame that it's been given to us to like shoot down or dismiss other ways of of thinking and being right so it becomes we're we're living in all of these systems and the predominant system is trying to order away your feelings right by saying hey that doesn't make any sense and what are you talking about this is all merit based right like when i see when i hear those words they they just come into that frame for me right whereas i know these are just coded words for a whole bunch of other stuff, right? So the the reason why I'm introducing that kind of idea is because I feel like if we can't kind of come to grips with this totality and the not knowing, it's going to be very hard to use any thinking to solve all of these big problems, right? So having said that, there are tips in this book, right? Like there's ways forward. There's, you know, a, a system. So I wanted to to give you an an opportunity to to start to take us through a little bit of complexity genius, right? Like the the book is titled that for a reason. It's distinct from just our big talks about complexity. So I, I wanted to go a little deeper into that. Yeah, this thing about emotions that you're talking about. One of the reasons Carolyn and I wrote this book is because we were we were spending a lot of our time helping people understand that in fact they have emotions like they're having them right now and the fact that they don't notice them doesn't mean that they're not having them and denying that you're having an emotion or that other people ought to have emotions does not mean that emotions aren't shaping the complex system that is your culture all the time and so 
How can we get out of that space and get back into some of these much more ancient practices and ways of being that it turns out are outstanding for handling complexity? You know, that the thing that we set out to study and as we did the research for this book is like, we must be good at this. We must be good at complex. There's always been complexity. Yes, now there's more because of the internet and globalization and all these things. There's more complexity, but it's always been there. The natural systems are complex, right? Human systems are complex. You put three of us together and you've got a complex system. You put one of us by ourselves in the woods, you've got a complex system. So, we were trying to figure out what is it? What are these tips for us kind of rediscovering that part of us that is great at this? How can we put down the part of us that is so desperate to control and predict that we will add all this gunky stuff into our lives in order to make it so and then feel shocked when we fail? How can we let go of that? How can we how can we have a different relationship to that? So we started with the nervous system. What happens to the nervous system? And you know, like most studies, most of the studies we relied on for this book are western. So mostly what I'm talking about is the western nervous system. Right? We don't have for all kinds of reasons, we don't have great studies of the biology of most humans. We have mostly studies of the biology of mostly white men, right? Mostly. So, but in given this, there are some really clear things that come up. What we know about the nervous system is we have this sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight nervous system, that's the, our activation system. And we have this parasympathetic nervous system, which is kind of the create and connect nervous system. This is the, this is, we call it the complexity genius system, because all the stuff that we really need to do to handle complexity well is in that nervous system. And the problem is that complexity activates the sympathetic nervous system, right? So even as we're just needing the parasympathetic more and more, we are activating the sympathetic more than more, which means we are stressed. We have stress hormones coursing through our veins and we are trying to predict and control all the time and feeling more and more either angry or anxious or sad that we can't do those things, which just digs us deeper into the hole. This book helps us get out of that hole. I'm going through my notes. So that was that little little pause there. Because one of the things that really struck me was how, how so much of this, as you so aptly put, was is inner focused, right? It's focused on these cues, these these physical and, and and nervous system types of reactions that we have. And, you know, I was like, oh, this is really interesting stuff, you know. And I what I wanted to try to do was also reconcile this or or talk through the the reality of um the external and and how that affects us, right? Because our environments are often well, everyone's environment as a sentient being kind of is their own little bubble, right? But then there's the larger environment that we all operate in that kind of macros out as we move through the world, right? There's your home, there's you leave the door, navigating wherever you live at, whether it's Brooklyn for me, Europe for you, or what have you. So 
and on and on and on that goes. And, you know, one of the things that that makes me think of this is that, like you said, a lot of this science or studies, whatever term you want to use, really is looking at like a majority group. They're not even really the majority group, but they're the majority powered group, right? But we do know the external realities do affect, right? Living in a, in a world of, of climate change, you know, there's also what's classically called like environmental racism, right? Like, hey, where are we going to put the power lines and the sewage systems and the electrical shit and the stuff that doesn't work and the chemical dumps, right? Let's put those where Black people live, right? Or at least people who aren't white. And so if you're growing up in that, right, there's external realities that are deeply affecting all of those physical systems that are that are inside you because you don't have maybe the same access to clean air, clean water. There's carcinogens, um, you know, carcinogens in the in the air. There's chemicals. There's all kinds of stuff, right? Flint, Michigan, perfect example, right? There's lead in the pipes, right? So your ability to internally access this stuff is not going to um, head off those external realities, right? So how do we um, think through that a little bit more? These external realities are ours to wrestle with. And the fact that they're unequally distributed is a piece of what it means to be human at this moment in time, right? And to, to wrestle now with something that's always been true, which is that we are unfairly, inhumanely unequal. This is one of the one of the great complexities, one of the great things we have to wrestle with in our time. And the book points to our internal response in large measure because we need to change our internal response to be able to get a handle on the external response. If the thing that we do when we face into racism, say, as a white woman, if the thing that I do when I face into racism is feel bad and then not be able to handle my bad feelings so that I either turn them viciously upon myself and become paralyzed or turn them viciously outside and become more racist, right? Nobody won that. (laughs) This was bad. This was a bad little thing that happened just there. If I can notice, oh, I feel bad. And the thing I want to do is like crawl under my bed or defend that this isn't really true or quit my job and pick up a a picket line and just go there kind of thoughtlessly, reactively. The question is, could I get better outcomes if instead I could handle my bad feelings and I could say, oh, wow, I'm really having unpleasant feelings right now. What am I going to do with those unpleasant feelings? How am I going to, how am I going to understand them? How am I going to use them? How am I going to help them help me create the conditions for a better world? And this is basically, basically the question we're asking in the book and the discovery we had was there is a lot we can do to help our internal systems be more capable of handling the difficulties of the world outside us. And as we are more capable in us, we don't fall back on some of the tropes of human interaction, which 
increase racism, which increase injustice, which amplify the concentration of power or money. We can make different choices if we're not like driven by our past and driven by our discomfort. And, you know, there was, there was one section of the book that I, I really thought was really interesting, which is it's the, the moment when you start to talk about the, the movement, like breathe, um, move, and sleep, right? Like three very, one would think very basic things, right? And it struck me in a lot of different ways, which I'll try to make some sense of in this moment. As someone with a, well, formally regular yoga practice, my studio sadly closed during the pandemic. So I've been yoga rootless um, <laughs> for, for the past couple of years. But prior to that, had a very regular practice. We're talking two, three times a week. And this is for someone who's kind of, let's say, not very malleable. Let's put it, <laughs> let's put it that way. But it was a, a very important process to me. And it, and it incorporates so much of the things that are just in that statement, right? It's a, it's a movement, it's breathing and and sleep is very important if you're going to be you know come to the mat as your as your whole person as we would as we used to say, um, and I think about how these terms are so amazing, but they're also um, so easily co opted, right? In the sense in the sense that like you know again putting on the culture hat, I've watched like wellness so called wellness communities. Um, like just be completely opposite to what one would have thought, right? Um, I, I had um, Dahlia Kinsey on the show talking about decolonizing wellness, right? The way in which that as an industry works to, you know, enforce certain beliefs on, on us, you know, even, even sleep, right? I, I remember Ariana Huffington was like a big sleep person, right? And it's like, motherfucker pay pay your employees right like you, like you built this whole thing on like yeah hey you can write for huffington post and you know it'll make you big right and and you sold that for millions of dollars and then started telling me to like, hey buy a better bed and i'm like motherfucker just pay me money right so i could like rent an apartment right and not have to sleep on a park bench right so i'm being a little facetious to say that so often these these very um like important notions that you highlight in the book are also the very things in put in the wrong hands that are used against us, right? Like movement is great. And then they say, hey, you should walk 10,000 steps, but then download my app, right? So now I got another fucking security thing like tracking me, right? And sending me like cookies and stuff. So it's like, how do we manage through that, right? Because that's always the number one thing in my head when I read all this stuff is like, yeah, this is amazing. But then I just feel the vultures fucking circling. I mean, part of the complexity of our world is like, if, if it's possible to put it on your phone and use it to grab your data, somebody's going to do that. The thing that we are, we are on about is, um, is not, not a thing one has to measure, right? We're not talking about buying this app or this watch or this tracking device. You need to measure this. You can measure it. And in some cases, it might even be helpful to measure it. But actually, it's super helpful to not measure it, but just think about it a little bit. Try it out a little bit. And that's 
can we put the humanity back in some of our human systems, like our breath? Our breath, I think of the breath as basically the most underutilized leadership tool in the world. Self-leadership, family leadership, community leadership, organizational leadership, whoever you're trying to lead, even if it's you and your dog on the street, managing your breath is a tool that you don't need your watch to tell you about. You've got it with you all the time. And you just need to let some of the noise of the world go and tune into the thing that's in you. Uh, breath tells us which nervous system is activated right now. A short, a short breath, you know, high in the chest tells us that the sympathetic nervous system is active. And you can hear it in my voice, right? It gets a little panicky. A slower, deeper breath activates the parasympathetic nervous system. And you can feel when somebody's parasympathetic nervous system is activated because they are there for you. The sympathetic nervous system says, oh my God, I've got to get out. I've got to win, or I've got to control this or whatever it is. I'm here for me. The parasympathetic nervous system says, ah, we are better together. I'm here for us. And we have the, the switch to flip in our bodies. Like that's amazing. And we could do it. We can just do it. So this, this idea that we have more power to shape our inner environment and that that shaping of the inner environment begins to shape the environment around us. I think we could play with that, right? And see how much could we get it to shape the environment around us? How much could we get it to deal with things like institutional racism? How could we use our bodies to change that? The breathing is is critical as someone, like I said, in my practice, when you mentioned like the different shallow breathing versus deeper breathing, the, the thing that really struck me was the no breathing. Like when we're, when we hold when our we're really stressed out, we like, you know, we tense up, like we do the very thing that we probably shouldn't do. And when you're, you know, again, metaphorically speaking, when you're on the mat, you know, and you're, and you're in a difficult pose or you're holding a difficult pose. And sometimes that pose could just be standing still. So I'm not even trying to pretend that you have to twist yourself in a pretzel to do this. It literally can just be standing still. And um, it's amazing how quickly sometimes, at least I found for myself, my first instinct was to like stop breathing. Like you just tighten up and it, then everything becomes even, even harder. Right. So we're, we're fighting these, these kind of instincts between what we physically may know or not know and our reaction to, to the external world. Before I get into the like the last question, before we get into the final parts of the show, you know, I've, I'm also very interested in like counterculture movements, right? Because I think they, in the sixties kind of introduced kind of a lot of these Western to a broader Western audience, their first notion of a lot of these ideas came through that hippie culture, counterculture movement, and then kind of transitioned into like, the lesser discussed, but I find actually more interesting, like yippie movement, right? This idea like, I'm okay, you're okay, right? That if I'm cool and I'm doing what I need to do, then everything around me will change, right? I think, you know, Gandhi kind of had like a very co-opted, out-of-context statement, you know, be the change you want to see in the world or somebody that people like to quote. I'm going to say it was Gandhi. It could have been somebody else that looks mystical, right? <laughs> Yoda or somebody, right? So in, in my work, right, my thinking, I've come, I've studied this stuff because I, f I find it to be like hard, 
right? In the sense that for a lot of folks who these ideas are just ideas, it sounds really good, right? Like I've the, this is to me the classic liberal, right? Like, oh, you know, just if I just recycle, you know, everything will be great, right? Like just separate my plastics and my bottles. I'm doing what I can, right? And it's like, are you? <laughs> you know, um, you know, as Pakistan floods and storms, you know, hit the US and record heat everywhere, right? So I'm 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 trying to again throw out there how do we balance that to get into a space where our thinking even when using these internal tools that you talked about, allow us to extend to others to build solidarity. Because that's one of the biggest things that I'm, that I'm really trying to get better in my own life, right? Which is change is going to, has to come through massive moves of solidarity. You know, it's not going to come through me recycling, right? That's not going to stop the floodwaters from rising. So long preamble, but go. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we start the book with these, um, these kind of very physical practices, as you say, are we breathing? Are we moving? Are we sleeping? Are, are we taking care of just the basics of our physical system? And we progress through kind of more complex questions about how are we crafting our emotional surround so that we are we are as much as possible being more intentional about the emotions we consume right so that we 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 don't just have to take whatever emotional weather rolls through our system we can actually do some shaping of that we are we are involved in that complex system and we can be a part of shaping that. And then we take that all the way to this chapter on love, right? H how do we then use these ideas to shape our interactions with one another? And basically takes us to the notion that the point of it all, right? The point of all of this getting good at complexity is exactly as you highlight. It is for us to not let fear and self-protection drive us apart at this moment when the world is so complex in large measure due to human actions, right? When the world has gotten so much, so much more complex than our, than our bodily systems can handle, will we at that moment take the old path, which is stress and self-protection, or will we in that moment be able to take a similarly ancient path which is connection and community building and loving across difference which we are also absolutely wired to do can we create the conditions in us and between us to let that natural force begin to overtake us and become our regular force which i think puts us in an entirely different world Absolutely, and that's a that's a great tease for those to go out and get the book and get that <laughs> that those juicier solutions solutions at the end, right? Like whenever we can, not just leave a, a an episode, but leave a, a study that is going to focus on kind of deeper communal love and community building. That is a good place to be. 
<laughs> so I, I want to get us into the to the final two segments of the show, Off the Dome and The Drop. And Off the Dome is just some rapid fire questions. And I think I have three of them um, for you, two of, two of which people have heard me use before, but I haven't used them in a while. So I want to revisit them. And um, the first one is, again, first thing off, off the dome, off the head, is, you know, when you think about compl- complexity and complexity sciences, what is the one thing that you would love for people to never say again when it comes to complexity? <laughs> I would love people to not say, um, we've got to get rid of the complexity in this process. This is it's just like, it's, this is not the, this is not the way I want that word to be used. Yeah, that's actually a, a good one. That, that, one's, <laughs> that one comes up a lot. The second one is... You know, as you as we mentioned and kind of facetiously, there's all these inputs, all these things happening to us all the time. What is your one go-to, if you have if you can choose one, go to like genius complexity hack to sort of not take it away, but help you process through it? So the the first genius is noticing. Like this is the number one, I swear. If we don't notice what's going on, we are we are subject to it, right? We're gonna be mindlessly doing stuff and creating not not a good world. And so so when I'm when I am upset or overwhelmed, can I notice that I am upset or overwhelmed? Can I notice what it's doing to me when I have this like incredible urge to take action just to do something because I'm pissed off and I want to like write back that somebody's wrong or they've misjudged me or whatever, whatever it might be. Like when I have that kind of activation, can I pause and can I learn in that moment? Can I change that activation to curiosity, to connection, to wondering what's going on? perspective taking in some way, like we can shift, um, but we can't shift unless we notice. Absolutely. Noticing and being aware, being present, those are critical, critical things. Um, the final um, question, I'm going to drop one, I'm going to save it. Um, but I'm, the final one is if you had a choice to move in the world as either a hummingbird or a tiger, which one would you choose? Ah, oh, what a cool question. I yeah, I like this one. That's why I brought it back. I, I haven't answered it in a while. I, really and I was like, like I always it. like that question. I really like it. I um I love the idea of the hummingbird. I love pollinating. I love um, moving from place to place, acting with. I understand that the that the tiger is an important part of the ecosystem too, as like a vegetarian. I am drawn to moving with the <laughs> ecosystem and not to um, conquering it. There you go. Hummingbirds are, are very cool. Cooler than we think. <laughs> so that's that's awesome. There's no right or wrong question, but I'm always curious as to where people are going to land. Because, you know, tigers have this very, like, Im- imposing kind of royal kind of thing as opposed to hummingbirds, but hummingbirds are actually pretty dope. Um, so I wanted to get us into the drop and the, and the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our listeners. Um, could be any recommendation at all. And my drop is a show called um, Borgen, which is a, a Danish show. This is not new. It's It's been people who are into TV, particularly international TV. If you are 
you've definitely heard of this show because it's I've I've seen it mentioned as among one of the sort of best shows on on many many lists and I finally decided to start watching it myself and I I have to say I'm really really enjoying it. I think it's a it's a really good show is on Netflix. I've also seen it compared to The West Wing, which I actually never watched. Like I've never watched one episode of The West Wing. So I know for all the, you know, American liberals who are like dying in their sleep right now that I've never watched The West Wing. I have never watched it. So I can't compare the two, but I am enjoying this one. <laughs> so my drop is Borgen, Danish show available on Netflix here in the, in the US. It could be maybe available on other streaming things, depending on where you are in the world. So that's my drop. I mean, if we're going to talk TV, I don't, I'm not very good at talking TV. I don't spend very much time It could be anything. It doesn't have to place. be TV. Um, I have been, I have been watching Ted Lasso, which people have been telling me to watch. And, um, and I am finding Ted Lasso very enjoyable as somebody who lived, who was an American in London for a while, the cross-cultural pieces of that. Um, if you want, if you want true cross-cultural genius, you have to go to Flight of the Concords, which was uh, an old series. Two Kiwis. That's a good one. Move into New York, and um, probably literally the funniest thing I've ever watched. Yeah, that is a that is a great show, and they've and they've both gone on to incredible success in so many different ways. Um, what we do in the shadows, the Muppets. <laughs> there's, it's amazing. There's a lot of stuff I know, that it's the, amazing. The two of them have gone on to do um, to collectively and, and separately. They've been amazing. So that is a amazing show. Flight of the Concourse is, is funny as hell. So um, both really, really good recommendations. Um, Jennifer, as always, I want to thank you for, for being in conversation with me. I want to thank you for being on the show. This has been a great great ride to take with you on a monday morning or for me at the time i'm recording this always fun to be with you philip any 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 invitation you issue i'll be there oh thank you so much i appreciate it thanks so much for being on the show you can listen to the deep dive via apple podcasts and our website thedeepdivepod.com download subscribe listen and share If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.